We come this evening in our study of this seventh chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans to the eighth verse. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law sin was dead. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Now, we are dealing here with a very close, closely woven argument. And therefore, it is important that we should be clear as to what the apostle is setting out to do. What he's doing here fundamentally is to refute a suggestion that he imagines may arise in people's minds and which no doubt had arisen in people's minds, namely that the apostle was teaching that the law was sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, what he is doing here is to refute that suggestion. The suggestion arises because of what he says in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. He's got to clear up that particular point. And, of course, he does so for this reason. His essential argument in the whole of the chapter is to this effect, and he's already been saying it, as we saw last week, still earlier. His argument is that the law can never sanctify anybody. No man can ever become sanctified, delivered from the power of sin, in other words, by the law alone. As no man can be justified by the law, no man can be sanctified by the law. That's his fundamental proposition. But he even, of course, goes beyond that. Not only can the law not sanctify anybody, It is essential, if we are to be sanctified, that we should be delivered from the law. Now, that's the point. That's a better way, perhaps, of putting it. You see, there are two things here. You can't be sanctified by the law. Indeed, if you're not delivered out of that old relationship to the law, you will never be sanctified at all. Deliverance from the law is essential to sanctification. Now, it's because the Apostle was saying something like that by means of that argument about marriage in the first six verses of this chapter and so on, that this matter arises as a difficulty. What, says somebody, are you saying that we've got to be delivered from the law in order to be sanctified? Well, then the law must be something bad. It must be evil. It must of necessity be something sinful. God forbids, says Paul. That's a complete misunderstanding of what I'm trying to say. Well, now then, how does he deal with it? Well, we saw last week that in verse 7, he does so by, first of all, making a positive statement. Far from saying that the law is sin, he says, I say that I had not known sin but by the law. I'm profoundly grateful to the law. It was the law that really gave me a knowledge of sin. And in particular, he says, the tenth commandment, which puts its emphasis upon coveting, upon desire, and which brought me to see that a desire is as damnable as a deed in the sight of God, and that to covet is as reprehensible as to commit. 
It was when I saw that, says Paul, that I saw that I was a sinner. And if I hadn't seen that I was a sinner, I would never have believed on the Savior. I would still be lost. I thank God for the law. It is the law of God that really brought me to a knowledge of sin. Now then, all that you see was a positive statement with regard to the law, what it does, and therefore its inestimable value to a soul. But by just saying that, he really doesn't fully answer the difficulty or the objection, does he? Because a man may say, very well, that's all right. Uh, uh, that's what we'd always believed about the law, that it does help to do all that. But you've gone further than that. You have been saying that the motions of sin which were aggravated by the law did uh, work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And merely to say that uh, the law is that which gives us a knowledge and understanding of sin, and especially in this matter of coveting, doesn't really deal with that further difficulty and objection. All right. In this verse we're looking at tonight, the apostle deals with that. He's going a step further. But do notice his method, and do let us rejoice in it together. When the apostle's confronted by a problem, it's always well worthwhile to watch his method of approach. And it's invariably the same. He, he never tackles his problem as it were too immediately. His way of facing a problem is the method here. You start, you see, by laying down a proposition about which there can be no dispute. He makes this fundamental positive statement about the character of the law and what it does. Then having done that, he moves on. Now then, he says, that is the character of the law. I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the Lord said, thou shalt not covet. But, ah, now then, here comes the explanation. And it is a very profound explanation. Why, uh, why has the law had that effect of aggravating sin and lust in one's members? Oh, he says, the answer is, it is the nature and the character of sin. It, the trouble is not with the law. The trouble is with sin. Now then, what is the trouble with sin? Well, here is the statement. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. That's his statement. What's it mean? Well, perhaps the best way of approaching this is to take the various expressions one by one. Uh, let us, for instance, start with sin. What's he mean by sin? Well, he, he doesn't mean, as I'm going to show you, just acts of sin. He means sin as a principle and a power which works in fallen human nature. Sin. Very well, come to the next expression. Sin, he says, taking occasion. Now, here's the most fascinating phrase this. What does he mean by taking occasion? We will find that he uses it uh, again uh, in verse 11, uh, for sin taking occasion by the commandment. Same, he's repeating it there. Now then, what's it, what's it mean? Well, the original root meaning of the word that is translated here by taking occasion is this. It means to make a start from a place. It, it's a word to describe a place from which you set out. 
a place from which you make a beginning, but it develops then into this. It means having a starting point. Sin uh, having a starting point in the commandment. Or, if you like, uh, here is another one, and uh, this was a way in which it was very frequently used. Uh, you can think of it, you see, in terms of a journey, and then it's a starting point, a place from which you set out. Yes, but you can also uh, think of it as a, a, a military operation. And if you think of it in, the, in terms of a military operation, it then becomes a base from which you set out upon your operation. The base in which you make your preparations, in which you train your troops and assemble your artillery and your armaments, there is your base, your base of operations from which you set out upon your campaign. Sin, making use of the commandment as a base of operations. That's what he's saying. Or, indeed, you can use yet another idea. And some of the translators have used uh, this uh, next one also. And it's a, it's a very interesting one and, and a picturesque one. I think it helps to bring out the meaning perhaps even better than both the others. Sin using the law as a fulcrum. Now, you remember what a fulcrum is, don't you? If you want to, if you're confronted by a problem of moving a, a weight, a, a stone or something like that. Well, if you go and try and pick up that stone, you won't be able to move it at all. Well, what do you do? Well, you get a, a long bar. And then you put up some sort of a, a spike or some or a log of wood or something. Fairly near the thing that you want to move. Then the longer the bar, the better, because the longer the bar, the less weight you need to put at the end of it. And you'll be able, by using this fulcrum, to lift and to move that uh, weight which you are anxious to move. A fulcrum. This word that, the, uh, that is translated here, taking occasion, was very frequently used like that. So that we can translate it like this. Sin, using the law as a fulcrum was able to move something, was able to produce the result that it was anxious to produce. Now, there's the meaning of the word taking occasion. And we'll see how wonderfully it helps to bring out the idea that the apostle is here inculcating. Now, he says that it, sin uh, thus makes use as a fulcrum of the commandment. Here, no doubt again, he is referring in particular to the tenth commandment, with its whole idea of not coveting, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and so on. And ox, and ass, and servant, and so forth. Now, he says, what, the, what, what has happened is that sin has taken this uh, commandment about coveting, this prohibition of coveting, and it has used it as a fulcrum to do what? Or a military base of operations to do what? Well, he says to um, bring to pass in me. It wrought in me. Now this word wrought again is a, is a very interesting and important one. It's a very powerful word. It means wrought powerfully in me. It means really to bring to a conclusion to accomplish something. It isn't a mere attempt. It's a success. It's a thoroughgoing operation. 
So we should really translate it, sin taking occasion by the command wrought powerfully in me, wrought mightily in me, really did produce an end result in this respect. It's important we should give the full weight to that word wrought. Well, what did it bring to pass? Well, it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. What's concupiscence? Well, in the very same word which the apostle used in the previous verse was translated there as lust. For I, he says, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And it's the same thing. Concupiscence is really lust. It means desire, and particularly in an evil sense. That is what is meant by this word concupiscence. It means that whole state of the heart and of the person in which evil desires, lusts, and passions are in control. Now, there are two statements in the book of Genesis that really put this to us so perfectly that nothing is necessary but that I should read them to you. The first is in Genesis 6, 5. The description of the people before the flood. We are told that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That was the characteristic of men in the antediluvian period, just before the flood. Every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's concupiscence. They were controlled and consumed by these lusts and passions and desires. They were full of that. Well, then there's a second description in Genesis 8.21, which really says the same thing. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's concupiscence. The inner being of a man is, is thus, you see, in this state, controlled by these lustful, evil, unclean, and unworthy desires. Well, what the apostle says is this, that sin, using the commandment as a fulcrum, wrought mightily in him to produce all manner of such lusts and evil desires, concupiscence. Now, he is writing quite deliberately. He says all manner, and we must interpret it as such. We mustn't water it down. He says, I seem to be filled with this kind of thing. All conceivable types, all manner of things, were there as evil desires and lusts within my mind and in my heart. I seem to be nothing but a mass of corruption and of evil thoughts and desires and imaginations. Every imagination of the thought of my heart was only evil continually. I seem to be a cesspool of iniquity. That's what he is telling us that sin did by this way in which it made use of the law. Very well. So we sum up his statement by saying that sin used the law as a base to produce all that. Or, if you like, the coming of the law to the apostle with power 
led to the result which he has described because of sin. The very prohibitions of the law gave sin the very opportunity that it wanted. It roused it, really gave it something to work on as a fulcrum, and it moved in that terrible and terrifying manner. Now then, there is the apostle's general statement. Let's examine it. What does this tell us? Well, of course, the first thing it tells us is something about the nature and the character of sin. And there is nothing, my dear friends, that is more important for a Christian than this. What is the nature and the character of sin? How do you define sin? What's your notion of it? Well, let me indicate what the apostle has said. Obviously, negatively, we must not say that sin is merely something negative. Now, there are many people who teach that about sin. The whole doctrine of sin is most unpopular today. There are people who say that the whole notion of sin ought to be dismissed, that it's done a lot of harm, that it made people condemn themselves and feel hopeless and pessimistic. They say sin must not be used as a term at all. It's too negative. It's psychologically bad for us. It's depressing. And it produces a kind of mournful person. I think I've reminded some of you at dinner it before of how I once remember reading a sermon by a man. Most of the point of the sermon being this. It was a denunciation of Charles Wesley's great hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And particularly the verse which says this. Just and holy is thy name, I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am, thou art full of truth and grace. He abominated that. He felt it was a disgrace. Should be taken out of the hymn book, never sung again. And he tried to ridicule it in this way. He said, does a man, when he's applying for a post or for a job, does he go to his prospective employer and say, vile and full of sin I am? as if that proved anything. The answer to that, of course, is quite simple. Of course, a man doesn't say that to his prospective employer, because he knows the same thing is true of that prospective employer also. <laughs> but when you happen to be facing God, uh, well, then the whole situation is slightly different. You see the ridiculous position in which people uh, land themselves when they deny biblical truth and doctrine. But that is the attitude. You see, you mustn't talk about sin as being something in and of itself. Sin, what you, they say, what you really mean is this, that, that there are certain things you'd like to see in a man that are not there. In other words, you mustn't say a man's a bad man. What you should say is he's not a good man. You mustn't say a man is positively evil. What you should say is he hasn't yet developed to the extent he should have done. It's purely negative. It's the mere absence of certain qualities which are there, only they need to be drawn out, and education and culture and so on will bring them out. But they say, you must cease to say that people are positively evil and positively bad. Sin, what you call sin, if you want to use the term, is something which is entirely negative. Mere deprivation, as it were, rather than something essentially positive. Well, now, obviously, that is something which the Apostle Paul would reject in toto. Because his whole case depends upon this. That sin is a positive power that can use the lever, 
can put the pressure on the end of the bar and use the fulcrum. You can't move weights with negatives. You can't lift weights with the mere absence of something. No, no. The whole notion, the whole picture that he gives, the very phraseology that he implies is designed to bring out this thing, that sin is something positive. And not only positive, it is something powerful. It is something which is terribly powerful. It is something that can take occasion. It is something that can have a base of operations. It's something that can use a fulcrum. It is something that really can move great weights and obstacles. It can work powerfully. That's what he's arguing. And of course, in saying that here in this picturesque way, the apostle is simply repeating what he's already been saying earlier in this epistle in other language. You know, he keeps the whole thing running the whole time. Don't you remember chapter 521? This is what he's saying. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That, as sin hath reigned unto death, sin is something so powerful that it can reign. It's a monarch. It's a tremendous power. It's an emperor. Sin hath reigned unto death. The reign of sin, the dominion of sin, the power of sin. There it was in 5.21. Well, then, of course, he said the same thing in 6.14. For sin, he says, shall not have dominion over you. It has dominion over everybody else. Every man who is not a Christian is under the dominion of sin. And yet people say it's a negative phase. It's just the absence of good qualities. It's not positive. Positive, says Paul, it's as powerful as that. It can move men and throw them over. All the patriarchs, it knocked them down. It moved them. This terrible power of sin. And of course, he then used even stronger language, didn't he, in chapter 6, in verses 16 and 17. Know ye not, he says, that to whom ye yield yourselves slaves to obey... His servants, his slaves, you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked, he says, that you were the slaves of sin. But ye have obeyed the truth, but ye have obeyed from the heart the form of sound doctrine which was delivered unto you. That is sin. Sin is something like a slave master. Sin is that which controls people, absolutely. There is nothing which is so foreign to the biblical teaching than this notion that sin is something which is entirely negative. Well, I'll go further. Do you want to know how strong sin is? Well, Paul tells us here. Sin is as powerful as this, that it can even use God's own holy law to its own end. I don't know a greater estimate of strength and of power than that. God gave his holy law through Moses. Oh, yes, says Paul. But, you know, sin was too strong. Sin, sin was as strong as this. It even used God's holy law as a fulcrum to bring its own purposes to pass. And it succeeded. It did it powerfully. It wrought powerfully. It achieved, it accomplished what it wanted to do. Even God's holy law couldn't resist it. That's the measure of the positive character of sin and the strength of sin. 
I'm going to show you that there is no doctrine perhaps that is more important in a practical sense in the life of this country and of the world at this moment than just this doctrine that we are looking at this evening. Now then, let's go on and do that by putting it like this. How then does sin thus use the law? How does it use the law as a fulcrum, a base of operations, a starting point? Well, the first way I think it is this. It does it by arousing in us the element of rebellion that is in us. We are all born rebels. We are all born with an antagonism to God within us. That's a fundamental postulate of the Bible. Does anybody dispute it? Well, listen to Paul in the next chapter, in chapter 8, saying this, the, in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. He doesn't say merely that we occasionally do things that God has told us not to do. No, no, the carnal mind, and that sin controlling, is enmity against God. But, ah, oh, says many a modern man, I've been told it many times, I've always believed in God. Uh, I've always tried to worship God. I know, but the God you worshipped, you see, hasn't been God. It's a, a figment of your own imagination. The scripture says that the carnal mind, the natural mind, is enmity against God. The apostle repeats the same thing in the epistle to the Ephesians, chapters 4 and 5. It's in Colossians again. Being enemies, he says, and alienated in your minds by wicked works. Now then, what happens therefore, you see, is this. Here is a man living, and the law comes and addresses him. And at once this antagonism that is innate within him and natural to him, this spirit of rebellion, is roused, it's aggravated. And his self-assertiveness comes into play. Because man in sin desires to be autonomous. He is not prepared to bow to anybody. He's all right, he's self-contained, he's independent. And he resents the notion of law. That's why most people today don't believe in God. This is this idea that there is anybody to whom we bow the knee. Not at all. We are men, 20th century men. We stand on our own feet. Look at us with our abilities, our wisdom and our knowledge. Man hates this notion that there is anybody, even God, before whom he has to bow down and go on his knees. He's not going to be a suppliant to anybody. He wants to live his own life in his own way. Why shouldn't he? And so, you see, he says that the whole notion of God is nothing but a projection of the Victorian idea of a father. That's what they're saying, the clever people, the psychologists and others. There is no God, of course, they say. Ah, oh, yes, but you see, the Victorian father, the stern Victorian father, he repressed, he gave commandments, his word was law, and we had to do what he said. Now, people have projected that into infinity, and they say, that's God. Of course, it's something purely psychological. In other words, thereby they're showing this enmity, this hatred of God, this spirit of rebellion. And so, the great characteristic of an age like this, which doesn't believe in God, is, of course, lawlessness. The dislike of law, 
and discipline and order in any shape or form. People today have a rooted dislike of law and of sanctions and of punishment. Haven't you noticed it in the newspapers? They really by now are getting to a stage in which they don't believe in punishing anybody. A murderer almost becomes a hero automatically. He engages our sympathy. Nobody must be punished. That's lawlessness. The idea of right and wrong is going, but especially this idea of sanctions and of punishment and of order. Now, sin, in other words, is lawlessness in its essence. It is this rooted objection to any statement, any commandment, any prohibition, any notion of wrath and of punishment. And, of course, it works right through. You have no longer discipline in your schools. Children are not to be punished. Doesn't matter how they misbehave themselves, if they're punished, the parents will be up interviewing the headmaster or the teacher. And that is why I think people in this teaching profession deserve all our sympathy. Did you know this? That in New York City it's reached this point. Nobody ever fails an exam in New York schools. Everybody's passed. Why? Because they're afraid that the staff, the teachers, the headmasters and others are afraid of the consequences to themselves if they fail a pupil or a candidate. Now, I am told this on excellent authority. This is true. You may have noticed in the press that there is to be an inquiry into this whole problem of these adolescents, these juvenile delinquents in New York City, these gangs who are taking the law into their own hands and it actually works out like that, that everybody's passed in an exam. Now that is one of the ultimate ends of this lawlessness, this attitude towards anything which comes as a prohibition. The moment a man hears the law, he reacts against it. Who, who is this who is speaking to me? He defies him. And already you see, he's, the position that he was in is aggravated. Now, sin does that. Here was sin always present. Right, the law comes in with its prohibition. Ah, there's a fulcrum. And it presses down. And there's greater sin than there was before. It's aggravated the whole thing. In terms, then, of this whole notion of lawlessness. And it incites us to sin. Very well, we say. If he says that he can lord it over us, well, we'll give him some reason for doing so. We'll soon show him. That's the attitude. That rebellion that is in the human heart. And it's innate in every person born into this world ever since the fall of men. That's one way in which it did it. But there's another way. When the law comes thus with power, and especially when it puts this emphasis upon coveting and upon lusting, man in sin reacts in this way. He says, this is going too far. This is unfair. I'm prepared to agree, he says, that there are certain things that I shouldn't do, and if I do them, I'm wrong. But that's all right, that's a matter of actions, and a man is responsible for his actions. But now you tell me that the law says, thou shalt not covet, that I'm not even to desire, that if I have within myself 
and longing for these things, though I don't do them, if I have a hankering after them. Now draw a distinction between that which really comes out of the heart and that which is a temptation from the outside. I am talking about that which really comes from within. I'm talking about a man who enjoys sinning in his mind, in his imagination and in his heart, who really likes it and who feels because I haven't done it, I'm all right. Now that's the man I'm talking about. And I say that this is the reaction when the law comes and says, Thou shalt not covet. Even that sin, he says, now this is going too far. This is an impossible standard. This is unfair to us. It's all right as long as it stops at actions, but if it's going to examine my thoughts and my innermost imaginations, why, this is a sheer impossible position. I object to this. I'll go on living a moral life, but my, my own inner sanctum is my own, and nothing shall come in there. They hate the notion that the innermost thoughts are open to God and are as reprehensible in his sight as are these outward deeds and actions. And so, you see, when the law comes like that, sin uses it in that way that it aggravates the whole thing. And I'm in a bad temper and I'm annoyed and I feel that I'm being dealt with unfairly and unjustly. And in that state, I'm going to sin more than I ever did before. It does it like that. And then there's a third way in which it does it. And this is one of the most practically important ones of all. Sin using the commandment as a fulcrum wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. How well like this. It put ideas into my mind which were not there before. There I was, as it were, sitting down. Everything's all right. I suddenly... I'm confronted by a law which tells me, don't do so-and-so. And it makes me think about so-and-so. I wasn't thinking about it before. Now I begin to think about it. And as I begin to think about it, I begin to like the idea. The thing appeals to me. Lust is kindled. I want to do this now. I want this, and I proceed to do it. You see, the law, by telling me not to do it, brought it into my mind. It wasn't there before. The laws introduced me to it. And not only that, it may introduce me to thoughts and ideas about which I was completely ignorant before. But I, I may be reading a book which uh, tells me about certain things, uh, certain horrible perversions and things like that. I'd never heard of them in my life before. They never bothered me. They never tempted me because I wasn't aware of their existence. But I now read a book which warns me against these things. And the moment I begin to read, something stirs within me. Ah, why do people do this? It must be rather nice. It must be rather attractive. Ah, and on I go, and I begin to see myself doing it. I'm doing all this in my imagination, and I'm enjoying it, and perhaps I eventually do the thing itself. That's how it works. Let me read you, then, the classical statement of all this. Titus 1.15, the epistle to Titus, chapter 1, verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. There's the statement. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto, the, unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, listen, is nothing pure, nothing. You see, if your mind is defiled, well then, everything that comes into it is going to be defiled. 
Everything that comes into it's going to be twisted. It won't come in pure. It'll have a particular angle on it. It'll be colored by the spectacles that you're wearing. Unto the defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Purity is not pure to the undefiled. The moment it makes contact, it becomes impure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Very well, says Paul. Because that it was true of me, because it's true of every man born into this world since the fall, in sin and in iniquity, the very pure law of God coming with its prohibitions and its restraints and its commandments, inflamed my passions, roused within me a desire to do the very things it was prohibiting, introduced me to things I never knew of before, and thus, what did it do? Well, it brought forth fruit unto death in me. In other words, he is, you see here, really giving us an explanation of what he said in verse 5. That's how it happened. It wasn't the law. The law of God is pure. The law introduces us to the nature of sin. It helps us to see that coveting is sin. Well, what's happened then? Oh, the terrible thing is this, that this powerful thing called sin was able even to use that pure law of God as a fulcrum to produce all this in me. It was a base of operations, and the enemy came in as a flood. And I ended off as being worse than I was before. That's the explanation, says the apostle. Now then, shall I apply this? Shall we draw some practical help from what the apostle is saying here? I say there is nothing perhaps more important at this present time than just this. Here's the first conclusion I draw, therefore. If you and I, my friends, are not clear as to the nature of sin, we'll never understand the teaching of the Bible. The whole of the biblical teaching concerning salvation is based upon a clear understanding of what sin really is, its nature. There is no hope of our understanding anything apart from this. You'll never see why you've got to die to the law if you don't understand the nature of sin. You'll never see why the Son of God had to come and die. You'll never see the necessity of a regeneration and a rebirth. And that's why so many people don't believe in it, you see. They think that they can decide for Christ as they are. How can they, if this is true? This controls everything. Most of the troubles today are due to a failure to grasp and understand this biblical doctrine of sin. And here in this one verse, we are given a view and an exposure of it, such as you'll scarcely find anywhere else with such clarity. Here it is. It is this thing that can even use God's law as a fulcrum to bring to pass its own nefarious ends. The second conclusion I would draw is this one. Here in our immediate context, what the apostle has said, about sin and the way it has used the law as a fulcrum, absolutely proves to the hilt his double contention. The first was this, wasn't it? That no man can ever be sanctified by the law. Here's the proof of it. How can a man be sanctified by the law when sin is reigning in him and can even use that law as a fulcrum? His second contention was this. 
that a man never can be sanctified until his old relationship to the law has been abolished. He's got to die to the law and be married to another before he can be sanctified. He proves that also, doesn't he? As long as sin is there, well, all the law does is to provide a fulcrum to make things worse. Well, how can it then possibly sanctify? You see, he reduces the whole thing to an absurdity. He's proving his contention, and he does so in the dual sense. And then let me draw two more general and practical deductions and lessons. Is there anything that you know of in the light of this teaching which is more dangerous than the modern ideas about sex and morality teaching? You know, we're being exhorted constantly to give instruction about sex and morality to our children. Constantly being advised by all sorts of people to do this. Say, that's been the great trouble in the past, that people didn't do this. They made a bogey of, uh, of sex. It was the unmentionable something. It was always kept back. And the result was, they said, that all our forefathers were just nothing but a mass of complexes and repressions. They were all psychologically ill. That's what they really are saying. That because they didn't talk freely about sex and bring it to the open and so on, everybody was suffering from repression. Everybody who lived until this generation arrived were psychopaths. They were all thus uh, holding down things because they never faced sex in an open, manly, free way. Well, they say, that's unhealthy. And the thing to do is to bring it out. Talk to children about it. I saw that one day last week, I think it was, that one man did grant us this concession, that it was perhaps better for us, uh, father and mother, not to talk to our own children. We better get an uncle to do it, or a relative or a friend or somebody else. Well, however, that was merely a little detail in passing. The important thing is that it must be done. And if only we tell them about sex and give them the facts about life and about morality problem will be solved. They'll never sin. There'll be no more sin. They won't go wrong. It's because you've been whispering about the thing and treating it as a great secret. Bring it out. Talk about it. Let it be natural and quite free. Oh, what ignorance, not only of human nature, but of sin. Can't you see that what you're doing is to introduce them to it? You're telling them about it. And the more you tell them, the more they'll want it. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But they're not pure. Our children are not pure. We are not pure. To their defiled, nothing is pure. I remember a minister once telling me that he read a book called The Mastery of Sex. He said, I would to God I'd never seen it created problems in my life, he said, that I'd never had before. No, no, my friends, when you realize the power of sin and how it can use even God's law as a fulcrum by introducing you to things and creating desires and making you think about them because your mind's impure and your heart's impure, you will see that there is nothing which is more dangerous than this modern teaching and this modern tendency. And my last conclusion is this. This one verse, in and of itself, is sufficient to show the final and complete futility of what is being said so frequently today by 
many learned, good, moral men. When they tell us, ah, yes, I was brought up in the Christian faith and religion, but of course, I've developed since then, I've learned and read a lot. I still hold on to the Christian ethic. Of course, I've had to say farewell to the doctrines. They don't believe the doctrines. I think I referred to this back in the winter. A good and a nice man like Lord Burkett said that. On the brain, on, on in an interview on the television, it was taken up in the brain's trust, and they all agreed. He no longer believes the doctrines of the Christian. Ah, oh, but he's holding on to the ethic. Poor blind man. He knows nothing about sin, the power of sin. We'll see more of this, God willing, next Friday night, when Paul says, "I was alive without the law once." The Christian ethic without the Christian doctrines is valueless. It is the most hopeless thing of all. Why? Because it provides you with no power. And our greatest need is power that's great enough to counteract this other power that can even use God's holy law as a fulcrum and a base of operations. And the power is to be obtained only through the precious blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. If I did not believe that the Son of God had died for me in my sins and had given me new life, if I didn't believe that I was in Christ tonight and married to him, I would be of all men most hopeless. I cannot live or practice any morality or ethic in my own strength and power because of this terrible, devastating, awful power which is called sin. Well, thank God for Romans 7, 8, which not only illuminates the doctrine of this particular chapter to us, but helps us to see something of why life is as it is today, why we have this awful problem of juvenile delinquency, increase in sex crimes and robbery and violence, why more and more men and women are objecting to the punishment of crime. Here's the explanation of it all. They don't understand the biblical doctrine and teaching concerning sin. But you and I now do. And it drives us to Christ and makes us rejoice that we are in him, married to him. And that we live not not any longer in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. Amen. O Lord our God, we do indeed come into thy presence with praise and with thanksgiving. We see how foolish we are, as well as vile by nature. And we bless thee for him who is the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. O God, 
may thy power be more and more manifest in us and through us. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.